When did mic dropping become a thing? You know what I'm talking about, dropping the mic? Like, when did that become a thing? I asked that question of the internet, and uh, it turned up some interesting answers. Here's what I learned. Towards the end of his 1983 stand-up show, Eddie Murphy dropped the mic, and he pretended to walk off stage. He does it again in the 1988 film uh, Coming to America. It's a pretty funny scene. Rappers start doing this. They sort of pick up on the trend, and they start dropping the mic after a rap battle in the late 80s, early 90s. Obama drops the mic on the Jimmy Fallon show in 2012, and then again he drops the mic at the 2016 White House Correspondents' Dinner. So here's what we've got so far. A comedian starts the trend, rappers build on it, and the President of the United States perfects it. By now, the mic drop has become a full-blown meme, and as a gesture, we sort of use it as an exclamation point, as in that was awesome, or there's nothing left to say. I bring all of this up because tonight, Jesus drops the mic. Not literally, of course, right? There aren't microphones in a synagogue in Nazareth and 30 AD, but if there was, he'd be dropping it. Here's what happens in tonight's passage. Just a little flyby. Jesus walks into a synagogue. He says, give me the Isaiah scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61, and then he delivers his first and shortest sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus drops the mic. Last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism and temptation in the desert. We saw him put on our jersey. He stands in solidarity with us. He's on our team. But better still, Jesus succeeds where we fail. He's our MVP. Well, tonight we are picking up right where we left off. We left at Luke 4.13, and tonight's passage begins with the very next verse at 4.14. So let's throw it up here. If you'd like to follow along, it's up here. You can also have Bibles over here. They're a free gift to you. Maybe some of you have a Bible app on your phone. That's another good way to follow. Um, but here it is, Luke 4, 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, 
And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the end of our reading for tonight. I'm going to pray for us. This is not just Luke's words. We believe it's God's word to us too. And so I'm going to ask him to help us to understand what he would like us to hear tonight. Father, thanks for bringing us together uh, to gather around good food, also to gather around your word. Uh, Thanks for speaking, for not leaving us in the dark. I pray you would give us eyes to see what it is you want us to see tonight, ears to hear, hearts that are sensitive, ready to receive and believe what you have to say. Rightly apply these teachings to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, there are three things. Uh, Go figure, right? Three things I want you to see tonight uh, from this passage. First, I want you to, I want us to focus on Jesus' sermon. In these verses, and particularly in verses 19 to 21, Jesus is saying something definitive about who he is and what he has come to do. Some people call this passage the Nazareth Manifesto. Others call it Jesus' mission statement. I'm calling it his mic drop moment. But what's it about? That's the first thing we'll focus on. Secondly, how is the sermon received? I dare say that the reception was mixed. At first, people are sort of clicking like on Jesus. But it's not long after that that this sort of party of churchgoers, of synagogue-goers, become a lynch mob ready to throw Jesus off a cliff. I'd say things escalated pretty quickly, right? What happened? We'll understand that. And thirdly, and finally, what does this passage have to say to you and me tonight? Like, what does it mean for us? What does Jesus want us to take away from this passage tonight? That's what we're going to go. That's sort of our roadmap, where we're going to go tonight. Let's start uh, by rereading uh, verses 16 uh, to 21, just to kind of get our bearings. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written, these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down. Everybody's paying attention to him. And he says to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yo, when Jesus walks into the synagogue, he asks for the Isaiah scroll. I don't expect you to know what that is, so I'm going to tell you. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. He lived about 700 to 800 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah is a prophet who foresaw the destruction of God's holy city, Jerusalem, in the year 586 B.C. He sees God's people being taken into exile and forced into slavery. He details all of these things in the first 39 chapters of his book. But this is not how his story ends. The very next chapter, chapter 40, Isaiah starts with words of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. It goes on from there. 
When Isaiah closes his eyes, as it were, when he peers into the future, he doesn't just see the wreckage of our sin. He also sees a story of redemption and restoration sort of unfold right before his very eyes. And at the, sto- at the center of this story of redemption and restoration is a hero who Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord, or simply the servant for short. Now, there are five servant songs in the book of Isaiah, each one detailing who the servant is and what he has come to accomplish. The first of those servant songs, Isaiah 42, announces the arrival of the Messiah. Here's how it goes. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, look, my servant, whom I uphold, whom I've chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. A bruised reed he will not break. A flickering wick, a burning wick, he will not quench. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in all of the earth. It too continues. And four servant songs follow, each of them adding to and expanding upon this messianic vision. Each song of the servant bringing into sharper focus who the servant is and what he's going to do. As we read, as we listen, we see that the servant is going to be a light unto the nations. As a light, he's going to dispel darkness. He's going to help the blind to see. He's going to perfectly reveal the goodness and the beauty and the truth of who God is. The focus gets sharper still. The servant is going to end oppression. However, he's going to be the victim of oppression himself. He will be spit on. He will be scourged. Nails are going to pierce his hands and his feet. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, with his wounds, we are healed. So goes the fourth and the most famous of the servant songs. But as I mentioned to you, there are five. Five songs of the servant in Isaiah. And the fifth, can you guess what it is? It's Isaiah 61. The fifth servant song is Isaiah 61, the the passage that Jesus picks out when he steps into the synagogue that day. It's the passage that he reads out loud. The passage that he says has been fulfilled right now in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he declares, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus, right, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying when Isaiah peered into the future and he saw the face of his and the world's redeemer, the face that he saw was mine. I am the servant of the Lord. Not me, John Minan. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the one that Isaiah wrote about. I am the one who can and who will make everything wrong right again. I have come to announce the year of the Lord's favor. I have come 
to inaugurate, to usher in the year of Jubilee. This is Jesus' sort of mic drop moment. But we have to hit pause here for a second, slow things down, because this phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, it is loaded, and it requires some explanation. I'm going to be brief, but it's important that you pay attention, like listen to what comes next, because if you miss this part, nothing else is really going to make much sense about what Jesus is saying. Here's the background. For 400 years, thousands of years before Jesus was born, but for 400 years, God's people lived as slaves in Egypt. God sees their suffering. He hears it. He knows. He intervenes. After liberating his people, he leads them to a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, he tells them, look, you aren't slaves anymore. You are sons and daughters, right? Who the sun sets free is free indeed. You are a child of God. That's who you are. So don't return to a yoke of slavery. Don't live in ways that oppresses others and oppresses yourself. Live like sons. Live like daughters. God proceeds to give them some commandments. We could call them house or family rules. And one of those rules is that his people, his children, should work six days a week, but on a seventh they should rest. If God knows how to work six days a week and then rest on a seventh, we who are made in his image, should do the same. If he's not a workaholic, we shouldn't be workaholics either. And here's why. God's people, image bearers of God, his children, right? You are not defined by your work. You are not defined by your productivity. You are not supposed to find your significance or your security in what you do. You are a human being before you are a human doing. Your identity and your value and your significance and your security is to be rooted in this fact that you are an image bearer of God, that you are loved and you are redeemed by him, that you are a son and a daughter of the king. Sabbath is super important to God because if you don't practice it, If you don't rest, if you don't receive just the good things from his hand, if you don't relish and rejoice in the fact that you are his child, you're going to soon forget it. It takes practice, right? You're going to soon jump back onto that hamster wheel, and you're going to start running and running and running and running, trying to prove to yourself and to others that you're okay. You're going to start to try to justify yourself and to earn your salvation, which is impossible, It's important that we rest in his salvation. We receive it. We rejoice. Not only were God's people uh, commanded to observe a weekly Sabbath rest, they were also commanded to observe a Sabbath year. For six years, God says, you shall sow your field, and for six years, you shall prune your vineyards and gather in its fruit. But the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. During the Sabbath year, men, women, rich, poor, bosses, employees, servants and slaves, citizens and refugees, livestock, and even the land itself, everything, everyone were to rest and to receive and to rejoice. You have Sabbath days, you have Sabbath years, and then you get this thing called the year of Jubilee. You still with me? Okay. 
every 50 years, after sort of the seven Sabbath rep, or Sabbath years, the 50th year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would atone for the sins of the nation. Day of Atonement. As soon as the stone, a trumpet would sound, proclaiming liberty to everybody and the land. Now, people who had lost their land or their freedom to economic hardship, people who had to sell their land or had to sell their like members of their family or had to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive, they were set free. And the land that was lost was restored to them. Everybody in the nation was given a fresh start. Every man and woman and child got to experience release. Release from debt and release from slavery. They got to go home. They got to live lives of meaning and purpose and hope again. They got to work their own land and taste the fruit of their labors. It's hard to overstate just the significance of all this, like how deep and powerful this was. Right? Celebrating Jubilee was a way of looking back to Eden and a way of looking forward to heaven, to the way that things are supposed to be. It's shalom. It's kingdom of God stuff. Universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. That's what Jubilee is. It's a, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed all under the arch of God's love. It's what it is. It's what it's about. You and I woke up in a world today that needs a lot of this, that needs Jubilee. And Jesus says, I bring it. It's good news indeed. Today, Jesus says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? This, Jubilee, is the good news he has been anointed to preach to the poor. Jubilee is coming to a world that so desperately needs it. It is as if he drilled a hole into a prison wall and all sorts of good stuff. Kingdom of heaven, shalom, life that it was meant to be lived is starting to sort of gush in. For Jesus, this isn't just a verbal proclamation. As you'll see next week and the weeks to follow, it's meant to be visibly enacted. Jesus doesn't want you simply to hear good news. He wants you to see it as well. He, he says, right, that spiritual realities have societal implications. And they were always meant to. The blind will see, he says, This message is for your ears and it's for your eyes. You are going to catch a glimpse of the future life to come. It is here, Jesus says, in your midst, even if not in its fullness. The salvation that Jesus brings is present and future. It is spiritual and societal. It is verbal and visible. It's in word and in deed. It is holistic. It is huge. It is big for everything and everyone. There's a lot contained in this phrase. More could be said perhaps, or perhaps not. And perhaps this is why Jesus just drops the mic. He just wants you to sit with this fact that he is the one that you need. You think you need all sorts of things to live a good life, 
straight A's, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, sex, a good job after college, fill in the blank. You run after all of these things at breakneck speed, but you're still on a hamster wheel. You're still spinning and spinning and spinning in a messed up world. Jesus can set you free. He can give you rest. He can release you from the hamster wheel. He can bring you home. He can reunite you with your father. He can give you meaning and purpose and hope again. He can bring jubilee. This is his message. But how does the crowd respond to it? This point will be quicker than the first. How does the crowd respond? Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But at the same time, they said, is not this Joseph's son? The crowd initially spoke well of him. Wow, that's a really nice message, Jesus. (laughs) Click like. But just beneath the surface, I think, as a layer of skepticism at best and cynicism at worst. Richie Sessions, who is the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt, he describes the difference between a skeptic and and a cynic in a recent sermon of his. He says... A skeptic is honest about their doubts and their defeaters. At the same time, a skeptic is open to new ideas. A skeptic's open to correction, is willing to change his or her mind. They survey all of the evidence, but not so a cynic. A cynic refuses to hope again in order to, perfect, in order to protect themselves. Jesus comes and he announces Uh, that the kingdom of God is here and that everything sad is going to come untrue. But a cynic responds, isn't that Joseph's son? We know your parents. Uh, A cynic is sarcastic and bitter. A cynic is someone who's an intellectual elite and dismisses Christianity because it's what dumb people think. I detect some of this in the crowds. There's a frosting of sentimentality spread atop a cynical cake. But all of this, right, the sentimentality, the cynicism, it gives way to outrage in the end. This party turns into a lynch mob. Verses 29 and 30. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I don't think any of us saw this coming. When we started this reading, we did not envision sort of people grabbing Jesus to throw him off a cliff. But here we are. Why? Well, the answer can be found in verses 23 and following. Because in these verses, Jesus is essentially saying, look, people, I'm not here to entertain you. I am not here to congratulate you. I'm not passing out gold stars. I'm saving sinners. I'm bringing good news to the oppressed and to the blind and to the poor. 
these are the people I've come for. These are the people who get me and who get my salvation. Look at verses 25 to 27. She says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You want to know who gets me in my salvation, Jesus asks. Asks. It's a widow from Sidon. It's a leper named Naaman. Now, she's a woman and he's a man. She's poor and he's powerful. But both of them have this in common. Both the widow and Naaman are outsiders. They're not from your tribe. They don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They didn't grow up thinking like you. The other thing that they have in common is that they both are desperate. The widow desperate for God's mercy. The leper desperate for a cure. And unless you can identify with the likes of them, if you can't get off your perch and be where they are, Jesus says, you're going to miss me. And my salvation is going to pass you by too. The joys of Jubilee will miss you if you can't get off your perch and join the likes of them. In so many words, Jesus is saying to them, and I think to us, you know what your problem is? Your biggest problem is that you think you're okay. It's worse than that even. You think that you're better than others. It's not just you, right? It's me too, me, John, right? All of us, in our own ways, are proud and snobbish and self-reliant and cynical. Our American exceptionalism gets in the way of us receiving Jesus. Sort of privilege gets in the way of us receiving Jesus. Our racism, our sexism, our elitism, any ism, any one of our prejudices that puts us up here and other people down there, it gets in the way of us receiving Jesus. Our cynicism, that everyone has an angle and behind every cloud, uh, behind every uh, silver lining, there's a, a dark cloud, that gets in the way of our ability to receive Jesus. It's blocking our ability to reach out and receive him in Jubilee. Jesus came for bottom of the barrel folks. He came for down and out folks. For end of the rope folks. For those who don't know their left from their right. He's come for weak and wounded people, right? Sick and sore. And he's come for you. Because that's what you are. And he has a lot to offer. But in order for you to get him, you've got to let some stuff go too. You've got to leave your trophies and your resumes behind. You need to leave your pride and prejudice behind. You need to leave your cynicism and self-reliance behind. And you need to come without pretense, empty-handed, 
weak and wounded, sick and sore. Which is to say you need to come as you are. This is outrageous to people who think they're all put together. This is why people drive Jesus to a cliff. Coming weak and wounded, sick and sore is easy but hard. It's easy because all you need is need. But it's hard, terribly hard. Because if you let all of that go, what makes you special then? If you come empty-handed, what makes you more beautiful or better than the person to your left or the right? Nothing. And that's the point. So where does this leave us? I think it leaves us asking two questions. Who is Jesus really? See, I think this passage puts us in a place where we have to contend with who Jesus really is. Is he who he claims to be? Is he indeed the servant of the Lord? Is he really the bringer of Jubilee? What Jesus says in this synagogue in Nazareth on that day is so grandiose, it is so outrageous that if it's true, we need to worship him. But if it's false, we need to do what that crowd did and throw him off a cliff. Either he is telling the truth and we crown him, or he is a crazy person and we need to shut him up and crucify him. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century, 20th century thinker, says it best. I quote, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man, just the son of Joseph, who says the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You've got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option to us. He did not intend to. The second question that this passage raises is not just who is Jesus, but who am I? Who am I? How you answer that question will dictate and determine what you're going to do with him. Are you generally a good person who needs a Jesus sort of boost every now and then? Is he a consultant who has just come to dispense good advice? Or is he something more than that? Because Jesus comes and he doesn't preach good advice. He comes and he preaches good news. And good news is different from good advice. Advice is do this, do that, follow these steps, honor these rules. Advice is all about you and what you need to do. But good news is different. Good news is not about what you need to do. It's what's been done for you. Good news is about something that has happened already, past tense. You can believe it or not. You can receive it or not. But it's not something for you to do. It, again, is something that's been done. 
Jesus comes and he preaches good news to the poor. He comes to give sight to the blind. He comes to set prisoners free. He comes to usher in jubilee. There's rest for the weary and a rest that endures. We'll sing these lines in a second, right? Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. But in order to receive it, in order to receive him, you've got to come as you are. Not the person you want to be as you are. Not the person you pretend to be as you are. So lay down your burdens and lay down your shame. Lay down your pride and your pretense too. Come empty-handed to Jesus. Come weak, come wounded, come sick, come sore. Come blind, come oppressed, come poor. Because that is who gets Jesus. And that is who gets his jubilee. Come as you are. Let's pray.